When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. POTUS is not going to let a Canadian prime minister push him around, push him, POTUS, around. So let's say Canada, where we have tremendous tariffs. The idea that we are somehow a national security threat to the United States is quite frankly insulting and unacceptable. So logic and reason have very little to do with what Trump and, and his supporters are doing. How many times has President Trump said, if you hit me, I'm going to hit you back. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who wants to be a friend of North Korea's and an enemy of Canada's, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So there's a completely insane story up on Politico. You've got to read it. It relates what the president does after he looks at documents. He rips them up and throws them in the wastebasket. Actually, that's not completely accurate. Sometimes he just rips them up and throws them on the floor. And sometimes he shreds them into tiny little pieces of confetti. At least that's what he did with a letter from Chuck Schumer. People in the White House call this Trump's filing system. Trump's filing system violates a law called the Presidential Records Act. That law tasks the executive branch with preserving all official communications that pass through the president's hands and sending them over to the National Archives. Because, you know, history... Trump's been warned that he has to stop tearing up his homework, that it's against the law, but he doesn't give a shit. There are, or were, two guys, mid-level civil servants from records management, manually piecing all those shredded papers back together with scotch tape. That was their actual assignment until they got fired with no explanation this spring. They told Annie Carney, who wrote this eye-popping story for Politico, that they were marched out of the White House by the Secret Service and pressured to sign resignation letters. It sounds like the next presidential library might be a little more DIY than usual, but I've got a great idea for the gift shop, Torn Memo Puzzles. Today on the show, what did the president just blow up our relationship with Canada about? I'll be back to talk trade with Slate's Jordan Weissman. But first... Donald Trump asserted that it was the Canadians who burned the White House in the War of 1812. Then Donald Trump apparently said, um, but didn't you guys burn down the White House? An apparent reference to the War of 1812 and specifically to the British forces of the day. America's revenge has been a long time in coming. Let's listen in on two American patriots standing outside the burning executive mansion. Oh, Stanwick, do you see this? The blaze before us. Indeed, Lawrence, they've done it. They've burned our presidential house, our presidential manor, the White House. They set fire to it. My anger rages. Oh, the White House here burns. I hope, and I'm just speaking off the cuff here, Stanwick, but I hope that's in about 200 years. I'm listening. If this country still stands, that we have a leader 
brave and powerful enough yes. to retaliate for this action taken today by British forces. Yes, after a respite of roughly 204 years, give or take, we shall take the wounds we've been licking from this war of 1812, even though it's 1814 right now, and we shall make those northern maple lickers pay. Yes, don't know if we need to give them... Slurs like that. They tap their trees to let the maple run down their tongues, but I've heard that's not all they do to their trees. Oh, yes. They're craven and bent. I shall have my revenge in a hundred and four years, plus a hundred years. That's two hundred and four. Two hundred and four years. Look behind you. I look now. Look at these flames. Oh. I tell you, if there is a country that is independent but still uses the monarch on their currency to the north of us, and it stands 204 years hence, they cannot be tossed aside. They cannot be viewed as anything but a threat. Okay, let me throw some hypothetical at you, Stanwyck. Let's just say that in 204 years, this country that is formed above us, let's just say it's one of our strongest allies in the world. What would you say we do to them? Even if they're a strong ally, what would we do? Let's make them pay any trade imbalance, any even perceived trade imbalance. I vow on the bent flaming rubble of this noble house and President Madison's picture. Oh, this rubble is bent indeed. And on this bent rubble, we here do solemnly swear that we do hope that someone in the future does the right thing and doesn't use it as some sort of political justification for doing what he wanted to do anyways. No, no, no. It really needs to be an earnest desire. Yes, we'll make those saplickers sorry. Okay, I don't know. Have you noticed the way they say that? Sorry? They're going to be sorry, but it'll mean sorry. That's the way you're you're supposed to say it. I don't know if we need to make it as personal as you're making it, but Uh, yes! That sketch was improvised in Slate's Brooklyn Studios by Steve Waltine and Asher Perlman of The Opposition with Jordan Klepper. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Joining me in the studio is Jordan Weissman. He's Slate's economic policy writer and now the host of The Working Podcast. That's a new assignment for you, right, Jordan? Yes, it is. It's the first time I'm heading my own show here in the uh, Slate podcast stable. I love The Working Podcast. It's about the most interesting question, which is what do people do all day? Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Uh, On the most recent episode, I talked to uh, the 
auctioneer from Sotheby's who sold a $157 million uh, Medigliani recently. And it was a lot of fun just chatting with her about, you know, rubbing elbows with global billionaires and trying to sell them paint on canvas. So Cool. Well, if we were to talk about what Donald Trump does all day, the day would start with uh, provoking disputes with America's longstanding allies, and particularly over trade. And I think a lot of people have been following this with, with half an eye, partly because trade disputes and trade policies is kind of technical and kind of complicated. And I've got you here because you're so good at explaining this. And I wanted you to set the stage for us by just sort of explaining how this has unfolded. The current dispute started with Trump imposing tariffs on steel and aluminum from Europe, Canada, and Mexico, right? Uh, well, the whole world at first. Yes. Yeah. He he it was all foreign steel and aluminum. And I just want to say at first, you're you're totally right about trade. It's 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 a lot like plumbing. You know, you never pay attention until something's going horribly wrong, <laughs> and that's and when it goes wrong, oh, it is horribly it's wrong. It's horribly because wrong. Because there's raw sewage coming into your kitchen. Exactly. All of a sudden, we're talking about the end of the global order as we know it, right? Um, and nobody was bothering the globe. I mean, it is interesting. The World Trade Organization. I mean, it's something you can you can ha- safely ignore most of the time. But when it when it when it it blows up. The stakes really are high because a trade war, which I don't think any of us have really lived through, is could be economically catastrophic. Yeah, it could be damaging. And you know, a trade war. You know, there's no precise definition. You know, there there are no there's no number of round. Lo- you don't have to lob a certain amount of ammunition before you're officially in a trade war. But you know, if if it were to escalate, it could be bad, and it could certainly hurt certain industries. You already see um, steel prices going up, and that's hurting certain factories around the U.S. But so to come back to your original question about how all this got started. In one of his first truly dramatic gestures at one point, the, you know, a few months ago, uh, Donald Trump sort of almost off the cuff announced there were going to be steel and aluminum car- tariffs on for every country. <laughs> there were going to be no exceptions. Um, and then they started walking that back. And they said, okay, well, that's a little bit extreme. And so they started giving exceptions out to countries. And it seemed like maybe this whole thing would sort of d- be diffused. But for what sort of seemed to happen was Trump decided he was going to use this threat to try and then extract concessions on other trade issues, in particular NAFTA negotiations with Canada. Um, Those didn't really go anywhere. And so Trump finally decided, okay, we're going to slam on these tariffs with Canada. Uh, Likewise, and same with Mexico. And then likewise, in Europe, negotiations there didn't really seem to go as well as he hoped. And so eventually he implemented the tariffs on that side as well. So suddenly we're in this fight over this one very important product with some of our major allies. So, but just to be clear, I always assume that NAFTA prescribed whether you could have tariffs on steel and aluminum, and if so, what they would be. I mean, don't we have an agreement that covers that? How can he unilaterally say, well, I'm going to impose tariffs on a trade partner? You know, it's interesting. You know, you have a different situation with Europe than you do with Mexico and Canada. You know, you have the World Trade Organization rules versus NAFTA rules. He's doing this under a national security exemption, uh, essentially saying he's using a process known as a Section 232 investigation. Um, And we can get a little bit more into whether national security is really the issue here. But international... generally regarded as a big threat with respect to Canada. Well, and that's where this whole debate has gotten really funky and a little bit cartoonish and the rhetoric on both sides is actually a bit misleading, I think. But in general... Global trade law actually gives you pretty wide latitude for u- using these uh, national security or how you define w- national security. Exactly, for how you define national security. Uh, certainly the World Trade Organization does. 
But what what does the Trump administration mean when it says it's doing this for national security purpose, right? That's the big question here. And I think a lot of people are, are kind of confused by that, um, in part because the rhetoric we've heard from our trade partners like Europe and in particular Canada, Justin Trudeau and Krista Freeland, for instance, the foreign minister, have gone around saying, how can the Trump administration say Canada is a national security threat? We are dying with them on the beaches of Normandy. You know, you know, what are our, our Mounties are going to come in and invade, <laughs> right? Um, it does sound sort of absurd on its face. But what the Trump administration is actually arguing, and if you read these Section 232 investigations at the Commerce Department produced and their lengthy documents is it's not that Canada uh, has ill will towards us. Um, it, you know, it, we're 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 not at war with them. The pro- what they are saying is that the U.S. steel and aluminum industries are being eroded by foreign imports in general, and in particularly, we don't get a ton of steel directly from China, but from steel that's essentially being kind of laundered through other parts of the world that is effectively transshipped from China is what they call transshipment. It's where China will send steel to to Canada or to Mexico, and then that gets processed a little bit and moved to the U.S. And so what they're saying is, in order to defend, uh, in order to defend our interests, we need to build back up the American metals industry. We need to make that stuff here, and yes. so we're protecting this industry. It's exactly. A cla- it's a classic scenario. So it's not about whether or not a country likes us so much, you know, or, you know, is threatening us. It's about defending our industry. You can actually get deeper into this and it, it gets way into the weeds. But so that's what the, the national security argument about it. It's not about whether countries are actually antagonistic to one, towards one another. It's about this idea of just whether the U.S. has a specific interest in in protecting this part of its economy and whether that means you basically have to block out steel and aluminum from everybody. So he says that. So other countries say, wait a minute, we're going to retaliate. Canada's saying it's going to retaliate, mm-hmm. I think, by July 1st by imposing a tariff on our steel and aluminum, right? Mm-hmm. Or on, on other on other goods. Yeah, I off the top of my head, I can't remember exactly if it's other goods or if it's our steel and aluminum. But yeah, they are talking about retaliatory tariffs. That was what Justin Trudeau is essentially saying at the G7, saying that we're not going to be pushed around, um, which, of course, then Trump reacted to that rather poorly. But yes, the idea is there will be some sort of equal and opposite response. But when a country does this to you, it unilaterally imposes some tariffs on something that, that you export and they, they import from you. Are you... I mean, you're supposed to, in an ideal world, go to the World Trade Organization and Mm -hmm. complain and get a ruling, right? And in this case, uh, Canada and and possibly other countries aren't following through on that process. They're just saying, you do this to us, we're going to hit back at you. Well, so this is where the whole dance kind of comes in with how how global trade works, right? So let's take the World Trade Organization, how the World Trade Organization process is supposed to work. Yes, in theory... If the U.S. imposes a tariff that you think is legal, you're supposed to take that to the WTO and... Which is like a trade court. Yeah, yeah. essentially, for all intents and purposes here. And you're supposed to go to their their body, their judicial body, and and complain and say, hey, what the U.S. did here is illegal. And then the WTO issues a ruling. And if they agree, they say, okay, Germany, you know, Europe, um, you can then levy a retaliatory tariff of your own legally equal to, you know, whatever the U.S. just slapped on your stuff. Um, They're kind of skipping that process and they're just saying, okay, we're going to we're going to retaliate now and take maybe take you to the WTO later because the WTO process is lengthy. It's it's slow and they don't want to wait for that. They don't want to look weak um, uh, domestically. And so it's probably going to 
end up in a situation where they're going to have to defend their own retaliatory tariff as well. And the funny part is that some people have theorized that because the U.S. is using this national security exemption or this national security excuse, it actually what we are doing may actually be considered legal under those international rules, under those WTO rules. And anything that Germany, for instance, does in response might be considered illegal, which is kind of crazy considering how this has been portrayed and how this does seem like the U.S. acting as an aggressor here under this pretense that we're doing it to protect our, our security interests. But that might be how the black letter law works out. Does Trump care what the WTO says? I mean, if he got an adverse ruling on this or anything else, is he going to follow it or is he just going to say, screw you, I don't recognize the authority of the WTO? I mean, that's one of the huge questions, right? Would he just use that as an excuse to pull the U.S. out at some point if we got a big adverse ruling? In theory, a country doesn't have to, if, if a country loses at the WTO, right, we don't have to eliminate our tariffs. We could just deal with whatever retaliation the other country chooses because it's a small enough deal. Or maybe they won't even choose to retaliate because there are other diplomatic issues to consider. One of the things you realize the more you kind of learn about these global institutions is a lot of it is just norms. A lot of it is just sort of a gentleman's agreement. It's it's surprisingly fragile. What do you think Trump's real view on trade is? I mean, he keeps hammering at this, you know, America's made these terrible deals. We've got these terrible deals. We're, we're the victim. We're being robbed. All of this incredibly violent and hyperbolic language about trade. Now, one possibility is that's for domestic consumption, right? When he uh, puts a tariff, a tariff on steel and aluminum, which, by the way, I think George W. Bush did mm-hmm. in his first term, that, you know, plays well in the, in the Midwest, uh, industrial states, steel producers, auto manufacturing. It sends a clear political message. But does Trump really believe that we've got a terrible deal on trade? And if so, is he right? I want to start with what I think Trump believes. Fundamentally, yeah, I think he believes we are getting a bad deal. But that's that's kind of what he believes about everything. He kind of his whole it is just about resentment and the assumption that somebody is getting over on somebody else. And he's been hammering at this since the 80s. This is this is the like a lot of people point out the one consistent thing politically for him his whole life is this idea that the U.S. is getting cheated. I mean, he cites um, on this, he cites evidence that we have a big trade deficit. Yeah. But a trade deficit per se doesn't prove anything unfair is going on. There are there are lower cost producers and you and we have a consumption culture rather than a savings culture. And there are a lot of reasons why we're a net importer. Yeah. I mean, the simplest way to explain a trade deficit for for listeners, because um, it, it can get a little confusing, is there's all it means is that as a country, you like to buy more stuff than you produce. Right. That's what it means. It's like we only make a certain amount of stuff. And that's like, you know, how we make our money. And then we like but we we like to consume. Like you said, we we like our trucks and our, you know, foreign T-shirts and and all sorts of things. We are a consumption culture. And so what that means is you're going to if you don't make as much stuff, you have to import it. And then how do you pay for that? Well, in the U.S.'s case, you know, you you probably end up borrowing the money. That's part of we have this government. We have this government deficit. Um, well, we do have a surplus in services, which Trump yeah. doesn't seem to care about, no. but that's something that we do sell to the rest of the world. Yeah, we do sell services, yes. Our, uh, you know, much to the delight of McKinsey and co. Uh, also, you know, part of services are things like, um, services are a complicated topic because it includes things like tourism, things that you don't typically mm. think of as like, you know, selling to the rest of the world, people coming here. But yeah, I mean, if you, we look a lot better if you don't just look at stuff, but Trump is obsessed with stuff. Right. And so are some of his advisors. Okay. So Trump's obsessed with, with the trade imbalance and maybe he thinks that per se is evidence of a bad deal, but 
Are these bad deals? And when you look at NAFTA, just trying to be objective about it, is it a bad deal for the United States in that we have other countries have higher tariffs on our stuff than we do on their stuff? I mean, uh, NAFTA eliminated the vast majority of tariffs, period, between the U.S., Canada and Mexico. There are some exceptions. And Trump loves to and this this is sort of his whole rhetorical strategy of trade is to pick on these small, you know, fringe cases and, and blow them up into, you know, evidence that we are being cheated. The, most recently, the big one is dairy, right? Uh, dairy was left out of NAFTA because it's very sensitive in Canada, uh, Quebec and Ontario, just like have produce a huge amount of the country's dairy. I think it's like 70% of the country's dairy. Um, and no one wants to piss off Quebec because they have a whole, you know, history of separatist movements. Yeah. So they're um, protecting their dairy farmers and they have this huge, he said 270%. Is that true? The yeah. 270% tariff on dairy imports? They have a, they have a very high over a certain, so they allow a certain number, number of like low tariff imports. And then above that, they, they slap on a very big tariff. So yes, they essentially keep out the rest of the world's dairy. So um, if I'm a cheddar cheese maker in Wisconsin, I do think that's pretty unfair. What's the tariff on on Canadian cheddar coming into the, Wisconsin? So we actually have a, I'm not quite as fluent in the U.S. system, but we actually do have something sort of similar in terms of a quota that can come in at a low or tariff-free level. And then above that, we actually slap on pretty high tariffs as well. We don't import a lot of dairy in the U.S., which makes this whole thing kind of funny. You know, rather than getting into a, a comparative econ thing here, the main thing to realize is that Trump has seized on this small issue of Canadian dairy protectionism, which a lot of people in Canada, by the way, want to get rid of, too. There are a lot of people who say this is an insane system we have set up and it makes things very expensive for our own consumers. And in a lot of ways, by complaining about the way he has, Trump has probably entrenched it further, which is sort of the irony here. But he he has seized on this one thing that was never dealt with in the original NAFTA as an example of how we were being cheated by Canada, when in reality, again, the vast majority of tariffs were eliminated by this deal that we are largely on kind of reciprocal footing. The things in NAFTA that most most people really think were a quote, bad deal for the U.S., and I think I think you could argue they, they were, were things like dispute resolution, right? These arbitration panels that allow a company to sue a or to, to bring a case against a country over issues like regulations, not within uh, the judicial system of that country, but in these private tribunals, right? If th- this is the issue known as ISDS, Elizabeth Warren was, you know, a big opponent of it. It was a big reason why people opposed uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership because it had a version of that in it. Um, And that's the kind of thing that people get really frightened of and worried because essentially it gives investors these you know, it gives foreign investors these incredible powers that let the, allow them to circumvent uh, domestic law. That's the kind of thing that uh, a lot of people do believe was bad about NAFTA. Um, and to the Trump administration's credit, they've actually been working on eliminating that. from That's one of their complaints. But it's just not the kind of thing you hear about. And that's, I think, I think that brings up another big question underpinning the, the, this whole, what we've seen Trump do on trade recently, which is how much is he, are his desires actually driving the show? Like how 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 much of it is his you know resentment and anger that's driving policy in the administration, and how much of it is his advisors? Because some of his advisors, like Robert Lighthizer, the U.S. trade rep, are protectionists in a lot of respects. He's probably a, he's a driving force behind you know the the steel tariffs, probably. But they understand the issues, right? They're smart. They know they know what's going on. With Trump. He has these kind of gut instincts, but it's not clear what will actually make him happy and what his end goal is because he doesn't really clearly 
comprehend everything that's going on. Well, if you're working for Trump, getting him riled up about trade unfairness is the way to win any argument with anybody else, right? I Mm -hmm. mean, the one thing you know, he's the bait he's going to take every time is that we got a bad deal. We're getting screwed by the Chinese, the Canadians, the Mexicans, whoever else. But here's what I want to ask you, Jordan. Trump also said, you know, while with one hand imposing these these new tariffs, said, oh, I'd be very happy with no tariffs whatsoever. So he, you know, is that... I mean, is that would we benefit from that world? And is that possible? Why is he saying that? Yeah, I mean, so that's kind of a, a, a classic dodge in a lot of ways. You actually hear this from a lot of protectionists that, well, if we're going to do free trade, let's do real free trade. And they know, of course, that's just not politically feasible, that there are certain sensitive industries that you, you can't just eliminate all tariffs immediately. It's a non-starter. And so it's a way of just, you know, trying to be free tradier than now while actually trying to muck the whole system up. Well, why can't why couldn't you eliminate all tariffs? I mean, presumably you couldn't eliminate all subsidies. So Canada or Europe, they're still going to they're going to still subsidize their farmers in various ways, but they're going to say goods and, and services can move freely with no with no tax. I mean, you I mean, I'm sure. Yeah, you could. That'd be great. But I mean, again, you're going to upset a lot of entrenched interests in Quebec or you're going to upset, you know, sugar producers in the U.S. Uh, There are just all sorts of sensitive industries that are going to you know, that have political clout that are going to get ticked off. It's like, you're going, ta- it's you're like go- tax reform. You can yeah. say in theory, yeah. let's have no exemptions. But when you get down to it, it's just never going to happen. Yeah. I mean, are we going to immediately eliminate the entire, you know, the the 25 percent tariff on SUVs that applies to most countries outside of NAFTA? Like, that's that's huge. I mean, that's. Well, uh, but would we be a net benefit? Is Trump right that we'd be a net beneficiary if they were all eliminated? So, you, yeah. So in certain certain industries would lose and other industries would win. But there'd be more trade and overall there'd be there'd be better prices for consumers. And yeah, you know. I mean, you, at that point, you get into the distribution issues, right? Like, you know, is is it more important to uh, the U.S. to have slightly lower prices on SUVs or is it more important to the U.S. to have these places that still have car factories thriving, healthy communities? Those are the kinds of questions that arise. But if you're just doing it like a normal Ecom 101 analysis where you say, will net you know, well-being rise as as more trade leads to more efficient outcomes and better consumer prices? Probably. Um, it just the question is there there will be lo- losers. Who loses and how much, how badly, how much will those communities suffer that uh, end up seeing their factories or dairies close? What happens next in the trade war? Just to, to wrap up here. So Canada's threatened with retaliation. Presumably if it's threatened it, it has to go through with it unless there's some backing down in the U.S. And it doesn't, they left things on a pretty ugly footing in Quebec on Saturday. What, what, what's, is this going to a trade war? And if not, how do you de-escalate? Well, you know, I guess we're already sort of in the beginning of, of a skirmish, a trade skirmish, right? I guess it hasn't gone full on war yet, but there, there are tariffs coming with, with steel and such. I, I don't think anyone really knows. I, I personally have been a little bit nervous about what's happening to NAFTA negotiations. Trump is talking about um, basically trying to do separate deals with Canada and Mexico right now, which is would be major. It would essentially be functionally the end of NAFTA as we know it. I, th- I think it's it's really... I don't know how often you guys make predictions about what Trump's going to do. I don't think I'm competent to do it. (laughs) But is the question what Trump decides to do or is it what Trudeau and everyone else decides to do? I mean, they're right now trying to figure out, presumably, how to minimize this without losing face and without losing. Yeah, I think... So, okay, I think there are two sets of incentives, right? Rather than saying what's going to happen, I'll share this. I think right now Mexico actually has a lot of incentives to get to a deal. Their government is kind of on the way out there. It's not looking so great for them at the polls. 
there are certain things they kind of want to bake into a NAFTA agreement that really are pushing them towards the negotiating table to get something done. Trudeau sort of seems to be in the opposite position. It seems like the more he fights with Trump, the more he's rallying support from everyone in Canada, right? I mean, like Stephen Harper was coming to, who he beat, was coming to Trudeau's defense after the, the this latest uh, back and forth with Trump uh, over the G7. So it seems like there, there are these kind of two sets of forces kind of pushing the parties away from each other, Mexico closer to the U.S. and Canada further away. Um, and pol- if, if domestic politics triumph, maybe you will see the end of NAFTA as we know it. I've been speaking to Jordan Weissman. He writes about economic policy for Slate. Jordan, thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon. Our sketch was improvised in our studio by Steve Waltine and Asher Perlman of The Opposition with Jordan Klepper. Love those guys. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.